Buzzkills, the only show George Santos has never claimed to have hosted. Bye, bitch. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Liz Winstead, and that voice you just heard is my co-host, Moji Alamodeo. Hello, Buzzkills. Today is a special episode that we hope will give you some tools to deal with all of the shitty hot takes that are bound to come up over the holidays. We'll be joined by the hilarious liberal redneck himself, Trey Crowder, an anti-racist educator and author of White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo. We're going to talk about the intersections of racism and misogyny, and here's some tips on how to stand up to the moms for liberty in your life. Plus, we have the biggest abortion stories of the week, and Liz and I will break down the latest from Ohio and drag USA Today for their garbage reporting on how Republican women will save abortion. Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take USA Today. (laughs) I can't even (laughs) wait to get to these stories. But first, it was a really big week for Abortion Access Front. If you follow us on social media or follow a lot of other people on social media. Cool people. Cool people. You know that we have had a documentary film crew following us around for seven years, all being out on the road, coming to all of our events, capturing our activism at Abortion Access Front. And This week, it became a documentary that premiered at Doc NYC in New York, and we all got to go to the premiere, and it was sold out. They have three showings, and it was really incredible. It was so good. It was so nice like to have a retrospective of the work that we've done in these seven years. Remember when Roe was the law of the land? I know. It seems so hilarious in parts of it that the things that we thought were the hugest stories just were not. What was your favorite part, do you think, Moji, without giving it too much away, like what really got you? It was actually nice seeing us prep for when we went to the Supreme Court and um, countered the arguments during the Dobbs hearing. The Dobbs is the what took away our right to abortion nationwide. But just seeing us like prep for it and the actions we did there, I really enjoyed seeing that Mm -hmm. and seeing all of our compatriots. I thought that was fun. I really love just having a trip down memory lane of all of the clinics that we serviced and all of the relationships that we've made along the way. Like the culmination of that was really emotional. I thought. And it was really fun to have some old staffers and volunteers who've been with us forever and new staffers see the work. So all in all, it was really cool. And if you aren't in New York and couldn't see it, there's good news for you because you, between now and November 26th, can watch it from the comfort of your living room because you can stream it at the DocNYC website. So go to DocNYC.net and search No One Asked You. But we'll put that link in the show notes so you got it. I think it costs 15, 20 bucks, but it's worth it. And hopefully it's going to end up in theaters near you in 2024. So give it a watch and I think it will be cool. Yeah. What's that music? Uh, Does it mean it's time for Johnson Watch? I think it does. It does. That's our new weekly segment that brings you a new creepy anecdote about Mike Johnson the creepiest speaker of the house in American history, and that includes the pedophile wrestler. That's right. This week's episode, The Adoptee. What? Okay. It got my panties in a bunch, Liz. I started reading and then I just was mad. Okay, so in true Republican fashion, Speaker Mike Johnson has been trotting out his Black friend, right? Except in a not-so-novel twist, this Black friend has actually been a 
Black adopted adjacent child he's been referring to and speaking for since 2020. So according to Johnson, this magical Black child has helped him understand racism in America. But this child also purportedly opposes slavery reparations because, you know, the value of self-reliance. Very, very Republican. And he spoke of like taking this troubled 14-year-old youth in when he was a, wait for it, 25-year-old law student. Okay, what? Yeah, it gives me the ick. So I don't understand how this happens, that you're 25, and then you just find a troubled 14-year-old Black child on the street. And what does take him in mean, Moji? What does that mean? Apparently, at some point, this child that he'd met through, oh my gosh, it was a religious organization. It was called- Oh, Young Life. Young Life, yes. Yes. In some religious organization, he'd met this child. And at some point, this child became homeless, unhoused as a child. And he just took him in. And I couldn't tell you what it meant because there are no records. There was no adoption. There was no uh, guardianship. There is no paperwork that says what happened. He just refers to this child. And it turns out there are, in fact, pictures. So is there record of the child living with him? There are some pictures of a child okay, and this man. And also, like, let me ask this. Can a 14-year-old just live with a 25-year-old? Was there an adoption process? No, no, no. And this law student says that the lengthy adoption process is what kept him from doing that. But it just... You mean the law student, Mike Johnson? Yes, the 25-year-old law student, Mike Johnson, said it was too lengthy to get that. So we just took him in. Wait, wait, wait. Was he married? He claims it, but everyone is kind of like the timing doesn't actually work. He might have been a single man with this child. But before you move on to it gets even weirder. As it does. Adoption papers are put in place so creepy people can't just take children and I don't know, put them into some kind of indentured servitude or or sex work or a myriad of things that go labor laws. There's no record of this kid going to school. There's no record of like why he got possession of this child. There's no record of anyone following up after he, I'm just going to say took possession because it was not adoption or fostering. Okay. So it was like an abandoned car. Kind of like that. Yes. Similar. It's just like mine now. Children, uh, the possession of a child is nine tenths Mm -hmm, of the law. mm -hmm. Is that, is that the law? That's exactly what happens in Louisiana, it seems. So anyway, this is wild. So again, no one really thought about this, right? He became, he got a, whatever, elected, unopposed into all of the things that have raised him up to within three steps of the presidency. Two steps, baby. (laughs) <laughs> Two steps of the president. I don't, I don't want to make the story any worse than it already is. But. but when he was when he's in the House and he's not the Speaker of the House, he's like, you know, people are making having these racial reckonings. And he's like, well, you know, I have a black child and he's doing great. Uh, he's living in California with four children of his own. And people were like, what? You have pictures of you and four kids and there are no pictures of you and this kid. The pictures of this child have come out recently, like in the last few weeks of him, Mike, with this 14 year old. Is it always him? with the 14-year-old and never him with like the 14-year-olds with the whole family. It's just him, the 14-year-old or him, the 14-year-old and his wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and also this child is a lot older than the biological children that he has. So, And, and only nine years or 10 years. 11 years age difference, which is 
bonkers. <laughs> okay. So people are like, where is this kid? Like, what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, you don't see him because he's 40 years old now and he has a family of his own and he chooses to stay out of the spotlight. He's like, but, and he says this, but due to my family's deeply religious intervention, he's having a great family life and he has stayed away from gangs, drugs, and prison. But also he said that he lives in California with four children of his own. Yeah, yeah. And a family. This sounds great to anyone who is here for the white saviorism of them all. It turns out Speaker Mike Johnson was lying. This child, who is now 40, has a purportedly faced over 18 criminal cases between 2003 and 2010 in Florida alone. And this is charges of possessing cocaine, of possessing concealed weapons, of possessing drug paraphernalia, and all kind of stuff like that. Also, and this was most disturbing to me, in 2007, when he was 27, the father of a 16-year-old girl he'd met online sought an injunction to keep this adult predator, and that's the words in the case, away from his child. I want to know what Speaker Mike taught him to make him think that as a 27-year-old, a 16-year-old is a person you should pursue. And how did he react to that? Oh, he uh, told the father that the bitch was his and he's going to do what he wants. And the man literally asked the authorities to give an, a protective injunction against him. He was like, I'm a disabled man. I can't fight a 27-year-old person. So he was willing to fight the father of a 16-year-old to have access to her. So just to recap, white Christian man comes upon a 14 year old at Young Life, which is a one of those Christian hipster kind of things that can go horribly wrong. It's like these people seem normal until they're not. Then he somehow pretends to raise him, says that he's doing great. And the child actually never really was doing great, even when supposedly Mike Johnson was mentoring this kid, was in a world of hurt, a world of problems. Where was Mike Johnson in counsel or guiding this person at all? I have an alternative take. Since that kid came into Mike Johnson's life, he was like, oh my God, Mike Johnson is such garbage. I have to keep doing drugs to keep my sanity. <laughs> but also I really do feel like if you are somebody who's a vulnerable teen and somebody offers you food and housing, that is something you might take up, but that's not necessarily helping somebody work through how they became unhoused, the circumstances for with which they um, ended up vulnerable and uh -huh. using drugs and all that other kind of shit. And for him to take credit for this person's life, and this person sounds like they've had a really troubled life, is super gross. I agree. And just to put a button on it, and I don't mean to drag this child, right? Like, it seems like he had a terrible lot in life. He had a not great start. Mike Johnson didn't add any value. I'm really asking, like, all I see is that a bigot gets a silent Black prop, and I don't see what he got in exchange. And that is really, truthfully, something that needs to be examined further, because it just seems really sketch that a 14-year-old could be living with a 25-year-old that there was just like no paperwork needed to be given. Also, as we have learned about Mike Johnson, his parenting is questionable. If he has his own son as his porn screener, what is he doing with this child? Exactly. The whole thing has way too many questions and no answers. And it's like some like really janky blindside version 
that just feels really sad. So that is the Mike Johnson update. We're going to put links to all these stories so you can read them. And it is a mess of a mess of a mess. So Johnson Watch, when we come back, oh boy, we have a good one. So you know what? It's always good to have Johnson Watch. But let's move on to the biggest stories of the week. And Alyssa, dropping a steaming pile of this week's news on you. Hey, hey, welcome back. It's your weekly steaming news dump where like an hour into an enema, shit's moving fast. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to kick it off in the Hoosier state because when Pussy Riot shows up in Pence country, it's your top story. That's right. It's so fucking bad in Indiana that Nadia from Pussy Riot with faculty and students from the U of I showed up at the state Supreme Court to film a music video featuring a 10 foot inflatable vulva. It's like I always say. If you can't bring the politicians to your pussy, bring your giant blow-up pussy to the politicians. <laughs> wow, Alyssa. It must be really bad if you ordered an inflatable vag and voluntarily went to Indiana with it. Yeah, it is. Indiana went from 700 abortions in July down to none as soon as their ban took effect in August. But Alyssa, are you saying no one in the whole state got abortions? Please. Well, Indiana had zip, zilch. Bupkis on the abobo front after Roe fell. Illinois saw 21,500 more abortions than in the previous year. So if the question is, who's your abortion provider? The answer is Illinois. <laughs> That's good. Next up, in response to the unpopular anti-abortion tactic, if you can't beat them, kill them, seven more people have joined a Texas lawsuit suing the state after being denied life-saving care. That brings the number of plaintiffs to 22 and counting. If the Lone Star State keeps this shit up, eventually every Texan doing some sexin' will be a plaintiff in this case. (laughs) And finally, over to Nebraska, where the Great Plains State is taking great pains to get their own initiative on the ballot in 2024. The citizens of Nebraska are the latest state to be fed up as fuck with their invasive species of a government and have submitted a ballot proposal to enshrine the right to abortion in the state constitution. Hooray! If successful, Nebraskans will have the right to decide when and if they want to have their own children of the corn. That's been your weekly steaming news dump. Back to you. I always love a children of the corn joke. It's good. It is. I love it. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks. Thanks, Alyssa. All right, Moj, let's get to the stories that you and I almost lit our hair on fire about this week. Oh, Liz. Yes. Do you remember that great day, November 7th in Ohio? Legal weed and legal abortion was on the ballot Mm. and those initiatives sailed to victory by decisive margins. That was amazing. Wasn't it? And we all rejoiced knowing that no more 10-year-olds would need to be spirited to Indiana for abortion care. Not that they could because it's Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) The next morning, Ohio Republican legislators let voters know that they will do everything in their power to ignore the results of that election. Seriously, everything. It's kind of crazy. Yep. It's forever Ohio updates because heaven forbid the will of the people is recognized. I mean, Mike DeWine, he kind of announced he accepts the results of the election. That was sort of, let's be clear. It's so sort of, I feel like you hand him some bullshit to sign. He'll sign it. That's what he said. Yeah. He's like, you know what? The people voted and for now we'll listen to the people. (laughs) But when they sleep in the dead of night, like we do a lot of stuff in Ohio, we're going to find ways to do some bullshit. The legislature though, they aren't even accepting the election. They are nope, wild. They're rogue. They are doing their own thing. They're like democracy. We don't know her. (laughs) I know. And they just kept saying so much wild shit. It was like, we all know 57% of the voters voted 
to make sure that reproductive rights and abortion were enshrined in their constitution. But of course, they say it was stolen by the secret abortion people, the George Soros abortion people, of course, foreign interference. They just have these buzzwords, right? Was Hunter Biden's laptop involved? I think Hunter (laughs) Biden's laptop actually was voting on its own. And they say that the initiative doesn't mention any laws so that it doesn't repeal any laws, not understanding that if you codify abortion, it repeals the things that say you can't have one. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait, okay. Do they not know how democracy works? Maybe they don't know how bad ballot initiative works. Maybe that's what it is. I think they don't know how anything works, you know? And also we talked about this before the election that they had put all kind of wackadoodle stuff on their uh, official government website. And they put all this on their official government website again. You mean like lies about what the what the uh, ballot initiative yeah. said? Yes. yes. Foreign interference, all of these things we've listed, they just put them front and center. They're like, Ohio legislatures will not abide by the results. Of, well, anyway, it's insane. So one of the legislators has really emerged as the lightning rod in this. Jennifer Gross. Yeah. If there's a if there's an abortion A word like let's like Karen. What's the abortion Karen? <laughs> Is it Amy or mm. Andrea? Alice? How about Andrea? Abortion <laughs> Andrea. <laughs> That's Jennifer Gross. She's the abortion Andrea. Ugh. Her county backed the the ballot initiative, at least the abortion one, 51 to 49%. So it was close, but it was a winning initiative in the county that elected her. Yeah. I mean, and even her anti-abortion constituents were like, look, we've had a bunch of votes on abortion. People want it. Maybe you need to move on to new shit. But she's like, oh, hell no, not a Bobo Andrea. She is proposed the wildest yet. It is the wildest thing I've heard so far, Liz. Can you tell them exactly what this insanity is? She proposed legislation that the legislature should have the power to strip from the judiciary any power they have to litigate abortion laws. So basically, when a law would go through the justice system, they couldn't rule on abortion. Only the legislature could. The legislature who makes these anti-abortion rules. Yeah. And people were like, honey, that's like not even a real thing. Like everyone was like, "Uh, we don't even know her, except for. It's on their website. What is wild about this also is that they could do this, just they would need a ballot initiative. Oh, my God. And who pays for the ballot initiative? Ohioans. Uh, Foreign interference, obviously. I'm going to say foreign interference and the Koch brothers. (laughs) Not if they won, it wouldn't. (laughs) And do we think the people of Ohio, after they've already said, we don't want 60%, we want a 50% vote on ballot initiatives, they already struck down their first shenanigans. I'm sure that Ohioans would be wildly excited about some kind of ballot initiative that said, we're going to strip the power of checks and balances away from the judiciary and only have conservative politicians decide what happens with abortion. This is clearly a stunt, right? Like this is clearly, I don't even know like in what pressure cooker they built this that they think that this is going to fly that this is constitutional that it'll stand up to any must that any judge would enforce this what judge ohio the other thing is ohio has a very conservative judiciary so like 
even they would not want to strip power from themselves. Yeah, I can't imagine it be like, you know, what's a good idea? Giving us less power. What we'd like to do is destroy our own rights. Although the conservative elected women of Ohio seem hell bent on stripping their own rights away. So with Abobo Andrea and company, it just seems like a mess. So we're going to follow that, see how it goes. There'll be some good sound bites out of it for sure. You know, we'll bring you those. But the other story that bugged the shit out of me that was kind of related to this whole thing was USA Today and every single sort of news outlet is trying to have all these hot takes on what is this abortion wave? Who's who's winning it? Who do we have to look to? And USA Today ran an article this week about how white Republican women are going to save abortion. They talked to like two women in their 60s who had feelings and then a Republican strategist who worked for Giuliani. And then when she decided that the Republican Party was a little creepy, she went to work for Cuomo. So please let her talk more about women. Oh, gosh. And when you gravitate hard to men who abuse them. So, yes, this was a whole article. And here's the thing. At the beginning of the article, the first thing it says is no data is in yet. And then they just continue to hyperbolize. Also, let's be clear, 9% of Republican women didn't vote Republican in the 2020 election. And so there's a whole last article that they're going to save abortion and that they're the secret weapon to winning when about the 90% women of color who actually never straight. Thank you. Also, they were like, oh, we have 9%. We have no data. We had to look back and be like, is this an opinion piece? Right. And there's a shit ton of data. In 2020, 90% of Black women supported Democrats, 70% of Hispanics, and then 55% of white women voted not for Democrats. I think you know what I'm saying. So how are they our our saviors? I don't understand how that makes them our saviors. And here's the thing. It doesn't make anyone a savior of anything because somebody did a big study on people who vote versus people who actually participate in the process. And while, you know, white women are the biggest slice of the electoral pie, right? There's like 44% of the electorate are white women, but majorities vote, but minorities not only vote, but they knock on doors and they post yard signs and do all that. Why is that? Because they understand profoundly their lives depend on their votes. They can't fall back on white privilege. And so if people of color didn't decide that they were going to do everything in their power to get elected people who are going to do, like help make their lives actually better. Less harm. Liz, it's less harm. Yeah, less harm. True. That's exactly right. You know, if they didn't vote, white supremacy would be so much worse than it already is. White men are not coming to save us. They might save some white women. Yeah, it's true. And the thing about it, Moji, is that we've been following all of these ballot initiatives and how people have voted, you know, since Kansas, since the first one. And what this article, which is so stupidly written, and I'm just angry. And the reason I'm angry about it is because people are going to pick up this paper or look at it online. It's the USA Today. So it's kind of like, you know, around in grocery stores. It's everywhere. And hotels. And patting these people on the back who haven't done shit is really angering because what we saw in Kansas when there was an abortion ballot initiative and candidates on the ballot, Kansans voted for the abortion initiative, but also voted for anti-abortion politicians. So the disconnect is between who is creating these laws, 
and how they feel about abortion is really there. And so with Ohio, the only thing that was on the ballot was weed and abortion. No people. Exactly. Not Mike DeWine, because probably based on anything we see, people would have voted for Mike DeWine, Jennifer Gross, and the abortion and the weed, which is that doesn't make it doesn't sense. make any sense. I think it maybe leads to just people not actually knowing how laws happen. That like we lost Roe because Mississippi, just one state, decided to push something all the way up to the Supreme Court, and it affected all of us. And I think that sometimes people don't think of how individual legislatures affect all of us. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see somebody doing actual reporting and actual studies about. When we deep dive into what does this mean for 2024, um, will abortion bring people out and get Democrats rallied? I hope so. Will we spend this time educating people on on who the politicians are that are hell-bent on stripping our rights so that they don't vote for them if they also have a ballot initiative mm-hmm. on their ballot? So I'm looking at that and shame on USA Today for holding up people who just showed up finally on abortion because it affected them personally. Literally because it affected them personally and their siblings. And that's the only reason. Yeah, it is like, no, thank you. I'm sorry, not to hold up Black women, but we vote for everyone. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 100%. I just think no patting on the back and it's... It's just wild. So those are our stories of the week. As always, these stories will be in our show notes and you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot is on the bottom right and will walk anyone anywhere in the country through their options for abortion care and resources for that care. And these stories, along with so many hot button issues, will also be thrown at you this holiday season. And we wanted to do a pre-holiday show with guests who could give us some tips on how to navigate the holidays without backing down from our truth using facts and humor. First up, he's a comedian, most recently writer of the travel guide Round Here and Over Yonder. He's also a massive star on stage and TikTok. Please welcome the liberal redneck himself, Trey Crowder. Hi, Trey. Hey, Trey. Hello. How y'all doing? We're So, Trey, quickly. Yes. I looked up the definition of redneck and it said poor, dirty, uneducated, racist, white Southern man. You don't seem <laughs> to be all of those things. No, so, no. like. <laughs> Only like half. Yeah. I'm like, so by throwing the liberal in front, it's almost like a reclamation of sorts, but like. To be honest, you've got to walk me through it. I'm a Black woman and Black people reclaim the N-words for ourselves. But my question, Uh while you get into like walking it out for me, who are you reclaiming it for? Like fellow liberal rednecks, Northerners, so they can re-examine their Southern biases, all of it. Now I yield my time. Go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I grew up in Clay County, Tennessee, which is one of the most like economically impoverished and rural parts of the deep red state of Tennessee. And growing up, everybody there kind of just like self-identified as rednecks without even really thinking about it. But more so, like, I feel like I live in Southern California now and I'm the most seemingly redneck person that most people encounter just from like my accent, and the way I talk and that type of thing. But I'm also super progressive and always have been. And I just felt like a liberal redneck as a, as a, character or as a name for video series, I just felt like it was the most efficient way to get across the dynamic that I have in the videos. You know what I mean? And I, like, I felt like people would see that and be like, what is that? That's not a yep. thing. 
And then they click it, and then hopefully by the end, it makes at least a little more sense. But yeah, when you listed off the boxes to check to be a redneck, it was going fine until you got to racist. Then I was like, okay, well, I'm not, not that one. <laughs> I do think it was effective in that way when I like first went viral. So I don't, it's not, I regret, I don't regret it or anything. I, I didn't like thoroughly think through all the implications of uh, of that whole thing, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, I like it. I think it's a kind of arresting. It's just unexpected. I was like, okay, for me personally, I'm sorry, just I, Redneck feels like a slur, which is why I looked it up. And I was like, can I, can I say that? You can tell, as far as I'm concerned, anybody can say it. My buddy Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show is a great comedian. I've known him for a long time. He's from Alabama and he's always been like, you know, always looked up to Roy. And when this was all first starting, like he told me he didn't think that I should use that in the name because it was like, and he tried to tell me, he's like, you know, I think it's got like a real serious implication to a lot of people that, you know, you're maybe not taking into account, you know, but I was already kind of in it at that point. You know what I mean? But I did start like on my YouTube channel and st- I don't go on stage as the liberal redneck. Like I'm trying to mostly go by just my name, Trey Crowder, but like I still make the videos and they are what they are. But yeah, it's contentious, I suppose, with some people. You know, Trey, we travel a whole bunch in the South. Like we do these comedy shows that bring on abortion providers and the activists that are working. We're not traveling to Portland, Oregon. We're in Birmingham and Oklahoma City. And we've been to Huntsville, Mobile and Knoxville and Memphis, you know, and there's so many dope liberals in the South. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm just so glad that, you know, people can have a conversation whether you should say redneck, whether you should not. But if the conversation is getting northern white liberals to like click on it and see that they shouldn't say shit like just secede because i've never met more fighters than people who know they're maybe not even going to win right but are just hell-bent on saying we are not going to just allow this one voice stand so that people think that that's the voice of who we all are. And I think it's pretty cool. When I like first went viral and stuff, I got so many comments from people from outside the South coastal liberals or whatever, people in big cities saying something along the lines of like, you're like a unicorn. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're like saying, I didn't know that people like you existed or whatever. And the whole time I was like, no, I'm not the only one. But even at my shows, other liberal Southerners, especially if they're from a small town, they'll show up to a show I do in Nashville or whatever. And they'll be like, I thought I was the only one in my hometown. You know what I mean? Even some of them, they call themselves closeted liberals and all this stuff because they're they're the blue sheep of their family, all these things. But there's more of us than people realize. And that's the emoji asked earlier is like, if that was what I was trying to do, get people from outside the South to recognize that. And I mean, yeah, that is important to me and also something I'm proud of. Sometimes people are like, are you trying to change people's minds? And then they say that and they mean stereotypical Trump loving redneck types. And they mean, am I trying to change their minds? And it's not that I wouldn't like to. I just don't think that I can for the most part. But I know I can reach people in other places and show them another side of where I'm from, basically, which I do care about. But I also think one thing that's super cool, and I know from the work that we do traveling around is If you have a bunch of progressive-minded folks doing a show in Little Rock or in Huntsville, you get every single progressive together in that room, and then they find each other. And that is really cool. They'll go, oh, I work with that person, or there's my neighbor. 
And I think that those things are really cool. So it's not just for the Northerners, but it's for yeah. other folks to find each other to gather. That happens all the time at my shows. And I've had people tell me they've met people at my shows who they like now keep in touch with it because it is a, or especially for these people who did think like they came in from some smaller town. They think they're the only one they get there. And there's, you know, whatever, 400 people or something at the show. It's heartening and encouraging to them. And it is kind of a beautiful thing. It's very cool. Another thing people misunderstand is I'll go on like, I'll do morning radio. In, in Portland or whatever, and they'll be like, so when you tour like back in the South, like, how does that go? You know, they, they think, and I'm always like, those are the best shows I ever have because it's my people that are coming to those shows. And what we just talked about is the reason why my best shows are all in the South. Not to say that I don't also have great ones in Portland and San Francisco. I do. There's this perception that redneck is a Southern thing, but like, let's be honest, America has had racist, uneducated whiteness baked in, like even in New York, right? Even in Oregon. Yeah. And non-Southern whites sort of thinking that they have some claim to enlightenment is kind of laughable. Like, come on, read the room. Yeah. What do you have to say to those people? <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, you ain't no better than me or no better than us. That's what so that's, <laughs> that's like my mantra as a, you know, being who I am, but uh <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the first big revelations I had, not that I was all that shocked by it, when I started touring full-time like seven years ago, going all around the country, was that like, you know, you drive across the state of Washington from like Spokane to Seattle, and it's pretty rednecky in between, you know what I mean? It looks a lot like driving across Alabama, maybe not in terms of topography, but in terms of Trump signs and jacked up trucks and that type of thing. And it's like that in California too, between San Francisco and LA, pretty much every state, you know, and it's like, you realize it's not a geographical divide so much as it's like a urban rural divide, I guess. And we have a lot of the same types of people in almost every state in this country. That, and also everybody looks at the red states and they just see a big swath of red without realizing that it's, or even if they see a map of a state, like Tennessee, it's mostly red with these tiny little dots of blue, but those tiny little dots are where huge amounts of people the people live. live right? Yeah, right. And people don't think about that stuff. And I also think too, you know, and we're going to bring on Robin now, but like racism is baked into all of us because it's foundationally part of our country, right? And so people are desperately trying to find some kind of um, respectability play for themselves that they have some kind of like enlightenment when... There is no way to live in this country and not have had it into your upbringing some kind of racist bias that you either are going to decide to work on or you're going to decide to not. Right. And so I think that this is a perfect time to bring Robin on just to talk about like where we're at. So Moji, do you want to introduce her? Absolutely. She's an anti-racist educator, author of several books, including White Fragility, which you may have read, and most recently, Seeing Whiteness. Please welcome Robin D'Angelo. Hi, Robin. Hey. Hello. <laughs> it's so good to have you here because it's like, I love Trey's work so much. I love your work. And I just think that when we talk about these divides and how we talk about who seeds the moral high ground, all this false narrative around people who have better experiences... Who better than all of us to sort of have this conversation, right? Trey, you and I sort of through our comedy try to take on some of this shit. And Robin, you analyzing and helping folks understand that we're all a little bit or a lot racist and like how we choose to deal with it is sort of the path that we're going to talk about. And just also laying out how racism and misogyny just go hand in hand. And so I guess... The first thing that I wanted to ask you, Robin, is talk a little bit about white fragility and male fragility and how they both sort of come into play, especially when we talk about how we talk about abortion. 
So, you know, there's a quote that comes to my mind and I don't know who said it, but I do love it. When you're used to 100%, 98 feels oppressive. <laughs> you're challenging whiteness, white advantage, white positionality, you're going to get white fragility, right? And I want to be really clear when I use the term fragile, I don't mean fragile like delicate. I mean, fragile like a bomb, right? Like hold it carefully because it's not going to take much for it to blow. And then there's going to be a lot of like fallout, right? And where I don't want white women to get out from under, I don't want us to use sexism as a way out, right? I want us to use sexism, misogyny, patriarchy as a way in. Uh, White women don't have any less racism than white men. We just enact it differently based on our socialization. But when you put whiteness and maleness together, of course, you're also going to get male fragility, right? Uh, I don't think any boy grows up not knowing it's better to be a boy than a girl. I mean, nobody misses that message. You can you can resist it, you can challenge it, but you can't miss it any more than you can miss the message that it's better to be white. Nobody misses that message. And so, yeah, you, we all absorb it. What we do with it, how we enact it, that that's where maybe we can be individuals. But at the group level, we're all swimming in the same water, right? And I love what Ibram Kendi says. We may not be the producers of racist ideology, but we've all been the consumers, Right. And so for me as a white person, I want white people to change their question from if they've been shaped by racism, because most, you know, if you ask if you have, most white people say, no, not at all. Only message I ever got was human equality. Change your question from if to how were you shaped by racism. Right. And then you can look at all those intersecting identities. I actually grew up urban poor. And so I learned my place in the racial hierarchy different than maybe a middle-class white girl would or a rural white male would, but I learned it, right? And I I actually can't talk about growing up poor without also talking about growing up white. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if Trey can relate to this. I mean, when I say urban poverty, I mean homelessness and living in our car and welfare and a lot of shame. My mom could not take care of us when we were not fed well or clothed. And we were literally dirty. And there was a lot of shame about that. And yet I can remember over and over being warned never to touch things that a colored person could have touched. The message was really clear. Had I touched that thing, sat on that seat, I would be dirty. Now, the reality was that we were dirty. But in those moments, we projected that shame and that dirt onto Black people, basically. And it realigned us with the dominant white culture that our poverty separated us from, if that makes sense. I see how we used Black people, right? We might have been at the bottom, but there was somebody below us, right? I think that's that's the great bargain made with owning class whites and working class whites, right? I'm going to exploit your labor. <laughs> but I'm going to give you something. You're going to always get to be better than the Black man. I actually really love that explanation. I mean, it really acknowledges that we are intersections, right? All of us are. And it's not that we're one thing to bring it back to abortion (laughs) because we are an abortion podcast. And it's historically been a topic that is hard to talk about. And of course, the tenets of white supremacy play such a role in like not only how anti-abortion people, but also well-meaning pro-choice people have perpetuated the stigma that have led us to this terrible anti-abortion precipice that we're on right now. So I'd ask you, what are some of the ways that we see playing out that can shift the narrative as we talk about abortion? I mean, I think it helps to counter this this narrative that it's always something that you regret or that's, you know, deeply upsetting and tragic. I have actually had two abortions. I have no shame, no regrets. Neither of them were any big deal. I, I had a child in between those two abortions. So it's not as if, you know, I'd never experienced childbirth. It just, I was very clear that that was not the right time for me. 
you know, just to be able to say that and to see that not everybody finds this a difficult decision to make. Some people, Mm -hmm. it's just clear as a bell. It's true. But yeah, we need other stories because the reality is there is a lot of shaming and prejudice. And as as a white person who breaks with white solidarity, at least I try to, I, I get a lot of that anyway. So it's like, here it goes. Yeah. And I was thinking about something Liz had asked about the relation to white supremacy and, and misogyny and abortion. And I do think that when it comes to talking about abortion, we're not in the dominant position as women, right? So we're not also dealing with racism, right? So when I talk about my abortion, I risk being shamed. I risk being seen as immoral, but I'm not also risking having that reduced to my race. So I don't want to proceed as if that isn't in there. But within patriarchy, we are in the subordinate position. This is why I proudly identify as not just a feminist, but an angry feminist. But I don't center uh, patriarchy in my work. I, I bring it in, but I center whiteness because there I'm in a dominant position. I have a very different voice. And even the way my body feels when I stand there and speak about whiteness, uh, challenge it. It feels really different than when I stand there and try to challenge patriarchy. Absolutely. And Trey, I want to bring you in here because as we have been doing this abortion work, I literally would go to watch your responses as all of this shit came flying out of the States. Mm -hmm. And I marvel at how A, hilarious you are, B, that you know how to talk about abortion without shame and stigma, without centering yourself and also truly getting the information that apparently mainstream media can't pick up a fucking piece of paper and read or talk to advocates. A, why do you think it's important? And B, I want to know where you're getting your information and your research, because the way you talk about it is so dope. Well, first of all, thank you. It means a lot coming from you. That's uh, it's very, very kind of you. I, uh, with the abortion stuff, I mean, I think about all my videos, but anytime it's like abortion related, I really try to actually think about it because I'm very sensitive to the fact like the part of me feels like it's not really my place to, be, to even be talking about this. But there, the other side of it is like, you know, being an ally in any of these causes, you know what I mean? So I try to usually I'll make some self-deprecating joke about how as a straight white man, I'll take any opportunity to give my opinion on abortion, you know, and then <laughs> get into the uh, whatever it is I want to say. And I I know a lot of times I've focused on just the hypocrisy usually is where I try to center, you know, my ire, the hypocrisy of their policies. So, yeah, I self-identified poor white trash in rural Tennessee. And like, I'm just always sensitive to the way economic issues and how much it sucks to be poor and how shitty poor people are treated across this country. And their disdain and hatred for babies that are born poor has been pointed out a million times. But like, it's vitally important to them that these babies must be born. But as soon as they are born, then they could give a shit less what happens to them. And like, I am not down with that. See, in my head, I feel like I have a perspective on like, ain't that part of it. <laughs> you know, I just try to find a place to focus on it that makes sense. That's where I get my information. I mean, I try to get it from all over the place. Like I just, when there's something that comes up, I know I want to talk about, I just do a lot of Googling and looking around and reading a bunch of different uh, articles from different places. Growing up, because of where I grew up, this was like viewed as very, very cold hearted at the time and whatnot. You know, I was like, pro-choice as like a teenager in Salina and like the Bible Belt. And that was always weird. And that people would ask me why. And I was like, I saw so many kids in so many terrible situations, right? In in Salina all the time. As a cold, angsty teenager, I was like, 
I, they probably would have been better off having never been born. You know what I mean? Like, I know a lot of people that are like that. And I just don't think that uh, if no one's going to take care of them after the fact, then why are we standing in the way of that? Like, everybody talks about how the immorality of abortion and they just, but, you know, but I'm not going to do anything about it. It's not up to me to help the unwanted children. And I just think that that's a bunch of uh, baloney. That is one of my favorite kinds of hypocrisy the people who are like oh no abortion but then personal responsibility and parenthood and it's like abortion is a responsible choice <laughs> right yeah of course a personal it is. responsibility of course it is. <laughs> so i'm just gonna jump because the reason we asked you both here is that it's the end of november and we are heading home for the holidays and so we all ourselves and our listeners need to bring our anti-racist anti-sex selves to the table and have hard conversations to counter not just the overt racist and sexist relatives, but also the subtle commentary that can be a little bit more prevalent and a little more cutting. And so with the world being a 75 alarm fire of awful, we hope that folks listening to us can get some insight and some tools to talk with relatives off the difficult ones over this holiday season. So Liz, why don't you just lay out one of the first scenarios? Some of the things that I think the people struggle with a lot, and I know I struggle with a lot because I am a person who is from Minnesota. Half of my family is from Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is not only racist, but it's the epicenter of like some terrible shit. So how do we set boundaries in advance? With Can we even do that? Can you set boundaries before you go? If you know that people are just going to be pushing buttons on purpose. First of all, when this topic comes up, and it comes up to me a lot this time of year, for a lot of people like, Wanted to talk, ask me about fans at shows and stuff. I always feel a little guilty because the truth is, I mentioned earlier, I know a lot of blue sheep in their family. Like my wife's a blue sheep in her family, but I'm actually not. My mom's Democrat who hates Trump. My uncle's, you know, a gay, a religious man who's president of the Clay County Democratic Party. My sister's a little liberal hippie. And so, like, I don't get into these situations that much outside of my in-laws. But I was going to my wife's family, and this was when they were huge Duck Dynasty fans, right? And my wife's family was. Like, every Christmas present, there was some kind of Duck Dynasty merch. They are obsessed with it. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, tell me about it. And he, the guy, Phil, the patriarch, he was in hot water at the time because he had said some homophobic stuff, right, in some interview. I don't remember exactly. Whatever. Called an abomination, played all the hits, you know, whatever he did. And that had just happened. And I told my wife, before I was like, I'm telling you right now, before we go down there, I was like, I'm not going to put up with none of that shit. If they start talking about how he's been railroaded for just saying what everybody's thinking or that type of thing, I was like, I'm not going, I'm not going to have that. It's like, you know, I'm not going to be able to keep quiet if that happens. And uh, she assured me it wouldn't be a problem. And then it wasn't. And I don't know if she like talked to her mama who is cool, who maybe, you know, put the failures out or what. So I've tried it at least once and it seemed to work okay. I think it's a fair enough thing to do. I did have my wife as a buffer though, you know, so it's a little different maybe. Robin, any tips? Yeah, I definitely have three overarching guidelines. I, I would oh, hope. love it. The first one is that it is a really common question for white people to ask. And of course, it's, you know, like, how do I tell so-and-so about their racism? And I like to look at them and say, well, how would I tell you about yours? Because that question always presumes it's not me. I'm going to go forth and let everybody mm -hmm, else know. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I think a lot of times when people are asking, what they really want to know is how do I say something with no consequence or risk whatsoever? How do I say something with no 
loss and remain comfortable, right? And you can't. I don't think you can expect that. I think that's basically white solidarity, right? White solidarity is the unspoken agreement that we'll just keep each other comfortable. We'll protect each other around our racism, white to white. Mm -hmm. And so you just um, don't expect it to be without consequence. You want to minimize that, but also don't wait until you're relaxed and articulate and because that's not going to happen, right? Like if you like, well, I just don't know what to say and I have to say just the right thing. It's messy and your heart's probably going to be pounding and you might be inarticulate, but do you want to be able to sleep that night? Do you want to be in your integrity? There's a book I never read, but the title has supported me throughout my life, which is Fill the Fear and Do It Anyway. In other words, don't expect it not to be hard. And lastly, I would say do it for you, not for them. So yes, I hope this person shifts as a result of me having said this, but I have to do it. I have to break with this. I have to heal the way that I have been conditioned into this thing. I have to be able to look myself in the mirror tonight and know that I, you know, what I profess to believe is aligned with how I actually behave. And that kind of actually gives you permission to not be elegant and not be graceful and not be clear, but by God, you did it. <laughs> you said something. And just for that moment, they had to hear a counter narrative. They didn't get to put that out there with no discomfort coming back at them. So those are some guidelines I would offer. I have some specific strategies, but I'll, I'll pause and see if Trey has any that he wants to share. I mean, I think the last thing you said, I mean, that is the important part, because especially in like places like where I'm from, they just spout this stuff off because it's like taken for granted that everyone there is on the same page as them. And I do think it's important to make, at least make them aware of the fact that that is not true. I also just want to say, too, that like having been someone who pushes back all the time at those dinners, I'm still invited back and they still love me. And I think right. that it, doing it for you is huge. And also, I want to also say, I feel like it's really important to always push back because I feel like, you know, I'm the person who will be there and say it and get no backup, right? From my liberal, quiet, sisters. And then they'll say, can you make sure that this doesn't happen? And I said, why are you talking to me? Why are you talking to me and telling me to always keep the peace? Fuck that shit. I didn't bring up this. I didn't say it. This person's saying something that's harmful. I have friends who don't look like me and I can't go out and say Black Lives Matter at a protest and then come home and be like cowering that, you know, aunt racity race is like saying something shitty. Like, that's not okay. It's funny because that's always how it happens, right? It's like you, they say all this crazy stuff. You might bite your tongue for a second. Then you speak up. And then like 30 seconds later, everybody's like, classic Liz. Why does Liz always have to do this? <laughs> what is it with Liz? Why does she do this every year? Whatever. When it's, you know, when of course it should be the other way around. But yeah, that's one of the parts that's so frustrating about it. I know. And that's one of the parts like, Robin, I want you to dive into strategies because I'm like, I'm drooling. Like you're a steak. That's medium rare. So white fragility is a really powerful tool to keep us in our places, right? Like, I mean, we we also get it at coming at us. I mean, there's there's a reason we hesitate to say anything because often things are going to get worse and it's going to escalate or, or that's what we fear will happen, right? But I think that like, why should the water spit me out? Why doesn't it spit, you know, Uncle Bob out, right? Like, yes. why is the culture one in which I'm the one that has to be silent, right? Let's switch that. So basically, I point the finger inward, not outward. Like that to me is like, the, if you do like this, that is racist. You are racist. There are times if somebody's explicitly like they've seen the N word or something like th there's a time and a place where I think you have to just say, no, you know, that's not acceptable in my presence. But oftentimes it's, you know, it's more slippery than that. 
you know darn well what they're talking about, but they but they didn't come out and say it, or it's less direct. So I just try to bring down the defensiveness and somehow connect. Like you know, I hear you. I I have had that thought myself. In fact, you know, I used to see it that way. So right now, like, hey, I'm connected with you because odds are you have. Come on, I mean, you know. <laughs> We've all absorbed this stuff. But as a result of, you can say, conversations I've had the opportunity to have with my friend um, Moji or, you know, something that I read or something that I that I watched, I have come to realize, and then you just speak how you have come to see it, the insight you have gained. It's hard to argue with my insight, right? It doesn't mean they won't, but I'm not telling you how to think or what you are. I'm just saying, well, I can relate, but here's for me. And and they had to hear that counter narrative and you were in your integrity. There's one other thing I would add. You can freeze. I mean, um, you know, I, in the moment you're like, oh my God, I don't know what to say. And it's okay to return to it later. My sister is really challenging for me, but I know her really well. And I know when she's open and I know when she's not. And so sometimes I just wait and then I get at a time when she's open and I say, hey, can I talk to you about what, what happened at dinner? I've been thinking about, has it really been bothering me? You know, and then she said, oh, what? You know, she wants to know, right? Well, what is it? Well, when you said, it sounded like, did you mean that, right? So it's at a different time. We're out of the public situation. I mean, that's not always a strategy because sometimes, you know, the rest of the group doesn't know that you addressed it. But if that one would work, go for it. I think those are good. And Trey, I was wondering for you before we wrap up, do you find, and sometimes I will find for myself, if it's two people that are fighting that humor can diffuse, like that you can be the diffuser? I mean, the truth is that's my personal number one strategy in these situations is yes, I try to like deflect with humor usually or whatever. And sometimes it's like self-deprecate. If they start like coming at me, I'll like, you know, start making whatever jokes at my own expense or, turn, or whatever they're doing, just anything to tr- sort of like disarm them, I guess, and lighten the mood. But I mean, yeah, that's always been kind of my natural instinct. Definitely think that helps. I do too. I think it really helps. All right. Last thoughts, everybody. You're all amazing. Moji, you want to get on last thoughts? I mean, you know, I don't have to deal with my racist relatives. Uh, we're all black and the white people who come in, we vet them first. It helps. <laughs> Good call. Well, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I mean, that truth is I don't, in my family, I don't either. Well, I mean, you know, my Maymaw's she's still a Maymaw, but like a lot of people have a lot worse than I do. So I'm reminded of that every year. So I think for me, it's like, if you haven't ever stood up to the challenge of somebody saying things that you don't believe, just do it because I'm going to just go back to Robin. You will sleep better knowing that you keep sitting in the light of your own belief system. You would just will. And why should you have to take on all of that garbage and just let it sit there? That is something that eats away at you. It doesn't eat away at them. So remember that. Yeah. And I'm thinking you also always have to be doing your own work. I, I, I mean, I know my people really well and I know how easily we want to get out of it. And it's always about somebody else. The more you're doing your own work on what you've been conditioned into, I think the more that these kind of strategies will come naturally to you. But if you yourself are doing nothing to address your own racism, and then you're just going to put yourself in the position to call out everybody at the table, I think that's that's a bit hypocritical. So, you know, you also have to be in good shape, not a matter of niceness. Niceness is not anti-racism, right? It it actually takes ongoing lifelong work. It's a a process and you need to be involved in it too. 
Yeah. You don't want to be some kind of like social justice Hufflepuff. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody wants that out of you. Uh, that was great. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Trey, where can people find you? Oh yeah. Uh, TreyCrowder.com, T-R-A-E Crowder and Trey Crowder on all the socials. But yeah, you can find my tour dates on there. Uh, come and see me. Check out my book around here and over yonder, Comedic Travel Guy with Corey Ryan Forrester. And list my podcast and all that comedian stuff. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And Robin, can you tell people where they can find you and where they can support the work you do? Yeah, thank you. I have a website, RobinJangel.com. I have a book, Nice Racism which is written precisely for white progressives, uh, my follow-up to white fragility. And I also teach um, online courses on how to facilitate white affinity work, where white people are working with one another to, to address our conditioning. So check it out. Oh my God. You both are so awesome. I hopefully will get to see both of you in person because you both are really inspirational. And thank you for so much for coming on the pod. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes, folks. So don't worry. You can get all their stuff. You don't have to remember a darn thing. Oh, my God. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Trey Crowder and Robin D'Angelo for dropping by and dropping so much wisdom. We hope it helps you get through the holidays and through life when the people in your life start spewing some bullshit. And reminder that at any point during the holidays, if you need a lift and a dose of support, you can stream the documentary about abortion access front. No one asked you until November 26th. If you just go to docnyc.net and search, no one asked you, you can find it. And again, that link is in the show notes. Like, subscribe, and show us some love with a five-star rating. And stay connected on social media at Abortion Front and turn that enragement into engagement. Looking at where you might fit into some abortion activism? Well, you know, AAF has a five-part activist training series called Operation Save Abortion that you can find at operationsaveabortion.com. And when you're there, you got to visit the super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. After hearing all the Ohio fuckery, you can join a webinar training from Faith Choice Ohio Tuesday, November 21st at 12 p.m. Eastern. They're hosting a self-managed abortion information sharing training. You learn tips and tricks for when discussing why self-managed abortion through medication is a safe, effective, and convenient reproductive health option. The session is open to all on Zoom and more info can be found on our activist cal. We're off next week, hopefully having these important conversations with our family. But join us the following week when I'll be hanging out with Jessica Mason Piccolo and Imani Gandhi from the Boom Lawyered podcast, who are filling in for Liz. I'm looking forward to getting their informed thoughts on the latest abortion news. Now, you're looking forward to them just being so hilarious and dragging people for filth. Let's be honest. They're fucking awesome. They're the best. I wish I could be there, but like nobody better to fill in for me than two people smarter than me. <laughs> Bonus for you and your listeners. <laughs> hey, if you like us, you can join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Finally, we leave you with turkey taint Charlie Kirk, a man who's showing us his whole ass and warning his listeners about conservatives' greatest enemy, pop music fans. Gobble, gobble. Taylor Swift is going to come out in the presidential election and she's going to mobilize 
her fans. I'll be nice. And we're going to be like, oh, wow. What, where did all these young female voters come from? We, we better have a plan for that. Taylor Swift, I think she put up one voter registration link and she registered millions and millions. And we, let's just be honest. All the Swifties want is Swift abortion. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.